Welcome to episode 7 of the Philosopher Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Karl Vogel about his book, Producing Open Source Software, How to Run a Successful Free Software Project. And James Vassil, who has much experience in open source licenses, will chime in. We will focus on the chapter 9 about licenses, copyrights and patents in the context of scientific softwares. So, hi, James. Hi. Could you introduce yourself and let us know how you get involved into open source projects and open source licenses? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is James Vazil. I've been involved in open source, I guess, since the 90s when I first uh, stuck Linux on a computer <laughs> at the uh, behest of Evan Moglen. And I've been a contributor to free software projects over the years. I've helped run free software projects. I worked at the Software Freedom Law Center for many years where we gave a lot of um, projects help with licensing and every other aspect of trying to keep a uh, free software project up and running in today's world. And through that, I got to work on GPLv3. I got to work on the Mozilla public license. I got to work on the GNU free documentation license. And so I got to sort of tour all the licenses that are used all around the world of free and open source software. And that's been a, a lot of fun. And from there, I went on to work at Open Tech Strategies with Carl. And we've been giving advice to businesses and government and, and projects for seven or eight years now through uh, Open Tech Strategies. And that advice is centered mostly on how you can use open source uh, investments in open source to achieve your goals. And so that includes a lot of licensing, but it also includes a lot of the business strategy that comes along with using a license effectively to build interest in a product and build collaboration into an effort from the ground up. Okay, thanks for your introduction. So, hi, Carl. Could you introduce yourself too and present to us your current projects related to open source software? Sure. I love that question. As, as though I have any projects that aren't related to open source software, it's pretty much uh, all I do. Um, so, uh, as James mentioned, um, uh, I'm also a partner at Open Tech Strategies. Before we formed the company, I uh, wrote a book, uh, as you mentioned, called Producing Open Source Software, um, which, by the way, is entirely online and under a, an open source license, effectively, so you can anybody can go grab it. And I've been working in free software and open source since 1992, uh, mostly as a programmer, uh, until I... Uh, and by the way, those were generally my full-time job. It wasn't like, uh, when I say working on free software, I don't mean as a volunteer. I mean, my job was writing free software um, in various uh, corporations. And uh, I found myself spending more and more time on uh, community management, um, sort of playing the, the role of honest broker in discussions and, um, and thinking through the kind of political and cultural Uh, recipe for making a free software project work well, um, and less and less time on the programming, and eventually um, started doing that uh, sort of full-time with James at Open Tech Strategies, where 
We also have staff that does uh, free software development. Um, but we do a lot of advising on license choice, um, okay. uh, both for scientific and non-scientific projects. Um, and I'm interested to see what uh, science-specific questions uh, come up in this podcast. Okay, thanks for the introduction. And before we go to licenses and all related stuff, we want to talk a little bit about the book we mentioned. When did the idea of that book came into your mind? Oh, that was uh, uh, after um, working in the Subversion project, uh, which Subversion is a version control system. Um, uh, not as familiar these days as Git, but still very widely used um, and also open source, of course. Uh, I've been working on it as a programmer and then more and more as a kind of... Uh, community manager for about five or six years. Um, and I realized that there was a lot of stuff in my head from that and from other uh, open source projects that I was part of that I wanted to write down and, and sort of say, hey, here are some things that I've found about running open source projects. Um, they are they're very interesting in that you kind of, you have to get everyone to cooperate toward roughly the same goals, but not, you don't have all of those people in the same manner management hierarchy, all the tools that are available, you know, in a single company to manage something uh, are not available in a multi-party open source project. And I found that that was a really interesting dynamic of, of cooperation and competition, and I wanted to write about it. Um, so that I wrote the first edition in 2005, it came out in 2006, and then recently revised it um, with some uh, very useful feedback from James, I have to say, uh, in Uh, the last few years and just put out version 2.0. Okay. Did any of your initial gold shift when you were writing the new edition of the book or is there something different in the new edition? Um, no major shifts of goal. I mean, I still think that, that uh, open source projects are a, a wonderful uh, and somewhat new thing under the sun. There's, you know, the combination of human cooperation and the internet is kind of a new thing in human history and Open source is, is sort of the best example we have of, of what uh, that can be like. Um, so my goal was to describe how to operate in that environment, and that's still the goal for the book. One thing that I did add was a lot more um, uh, material in the book on uh, corporate involvement and in particular on how governments get involved in open source. Okay, so James, do you want to mention something about the book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the having read the first book um, just as a, a thing that I thought might be useful. And having read the second book with an eye towards what we can add to it that would be more useful than the first one, I think the material that Carl has added to the book since that first edition is reflective of the shift in the way open source software has moved out into the world. Um, you know, more and more open source software these days is done by people who are paid to do that work in some fashion, whether they're paid directly to work on a free software project or it's just intricately linked to their to the, the way they make their living. The view of people doing free software as uh, volunteer hackers working nights and weekends is not the dominant mode of production of free software, if it ever was, and I'm not sure um, it was, but it certainly is not now. And so a lot of the audience for a book like this is people who want to do free and open source software production in the context of achieving 
some sort of policy goal or some sort of business goal. It's not just about, hey, let's make some technology and let's make the best software we can. It's how do we do this in a specific environment? How do we do it consonant with all our other goals? And so I, I, I like the update to the book as moving it um, more into this modern environment and being more sensitive to the ways in which free and open source software actually plays out in the world. Hey, thanks, James. I, I don't think I've ever heard you sum it up like that before. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> before we start speaking about license, uh, some of our listeners may not be fluent in all of the legal terms about FLUS projects. Uh, we will start by defining some of the terminology. Uh, we'll ask you some words and we would like you to give us your definition of, of those. Uh, let's start with uh, free software. When we talk about free and open source software, and I, I tend to use these two, um, these two terms interchangeably, we are talking about the type of software that respects what Richard Stallman once called the, uh, the four freedoms. I shouldn't say once called, but, but still, still calls the four freedoms. And the four freedoms that he identified start with the freedom to run a piece of software. Right. And so if a piece of, of software is something that you can take and you can run it, then you have that initial that initial set of freedoms that I'm sorry, that initial freedom that qualifies under this rubric. The second freedom that we talk about is the freedom to copy it, which is to say that in addition to running the software, I can make a copy for a friend of mine. I can take it and I can make as many copies of it as I want. And um The third freedom is the freedom to distribute it, which is the freedom to give it away. Um, you can give it to other people. You can make modified copies of it and give it to other people. And you can do that under the conditions of the license as you get it. So once you have the ability to run it, to redistribute it, to study how it works and to make changes, you have the, uh, the four freedoms. And I think I probably got one of the freedoms mixed up with another one, but um, that's how I think of it. <laughs> I, I have them. Uh, I have them in front of me there. There, because um, while you were talking, of course, I was busy going to primary sources. Um, yeah, freedom. Freedom. The first freedom is the freedom to run the program for any purpose, uh, and then the second is to study it. Uh, basically, an educational Correct. freedom, right? To look at the code, uh, and then to redistribute copies of the code is the third, and the fourth is to distribute modified copies. Right, um, right. Which implies the ability to modify it in the first place. Yeah, that, that is much better said and, and much more succinct than I had it. When you edit this, use that. Um, but yeah, those, <laughs> those four freedoms are the, the basis of free and open source software. And if you have access to a piece of software um, that gives you all four of those freedoms, we would, generally speaking, consider it to be free. And of course, there are a bunch of details around the edges of that, but that is the, the basic definition. And more specifically, when we're talking about free software, we're really talking about um, software that rather than any one party trying to own it and monopolize it, instead we take software and we um, combine our efforts to make it and share the benefits of the thing that we've made. And we treat the software more as a commons than a thing to be owned and exploited. And that, that's sort of the, the central part of what free and open source software means. Okay. So you do not make a distinction between free and open source software? I'll jump in for uh, James. I also have a thought, but I'll just say the, the open source initiative was founded in uh, 1997 or eight, I believe. Um, 
with basically taking the idea of free software and uh, sort of repackaging it under the name open source. And, and really, uh, to some degree, at least some of the people involved in that effort were uh, attempting to downplay the user's freedom, the kind of moral aspect of it, and, and emphasize instead the, the technical and, and uh, commercial and corporate success that free software, or now called open source by them, could enjoy. Um, there is there's a disagreement in the overall free software open source community as to whether there's a real schism here. Um, it is, after all, the same set of licenses and the same set of software, and all the freedoms that you get with free software are also part of open source. There's no there's no technical difference in the definition, but some people feel that using the term open source uh, downplays freedom and and just uh, plays up the technical aspects of the collaboration method and the development method. I tend to use them interchangeably as well. I, to me, there's one underlying object, and however many names we have for that thing doesn't change what the thing is. James may feel slightly differently, though. No, I agree with all of that. So yep. maybe that'll shock your listeners. I don't know, but we think it's the same thing. <laughs> no, that's fine. You use terms such as uh, DFSG compliant as well. Yeah, that's um, Debian. Uh, the Debian project uh, puts out a version of GNU Linux, the operating system, uh, that is very widely used. In fact, I am I am participating in this call through Debian GNU Linux, uh, which is what I run on all my machines. Um, and Debian has been a very influential project uh, because it's one of the Linux distributions, one of the first ones that um, really makes an effort to ensure that everything packaged in Debian is free software. Uh, and if you have to grab something, say a device driver that isn't free software, they, they label it very clearly and they make sure you know that you are doing that. And so this, this very consistent focus on, on being able to know that you are running an entirely free software stack on Debian's part uh, meant that when they put out their free software guidelines, which is, hey, this is, this is the social contract that we have. We, we guarantee that the software we label as free meets these following guidelines. That became, in effect, another way to be sure that you're dealing with a free software license. Um, the, so the Free Software Foundation has their original definition, Debian has the Free Software Guidelines, the Open Source Initiative has the Open Source Definition. But when you actually parse these definitions, they all define basically the same set of licenses and thus the same set of software code. Okay. And uh, there's also another qualification called OSI Approved Licenses? The Open Source Initiative maintains a list of licenses that they have reviewed and have decided meet their definition of open source. And so they have a, a list of those licenses. You can go to their, their website and, and see the, the, the licenses that have been passed through their filter and that they have agreed, generally speaking, meet that definition. Now, what about the term public domain? So uh, the public domain is the the set of copyrightable um, things that are not copyrighted, or rather not governed by copyright law, because generally speaking, because whoever had the copyrights has disclaimed them in some way or has lost the copyrights in some way, either through the passage of time or through not taking some, you know, not following some bureaucratic step. But the main thing to know about public domain um, software, it's just that copyright rules don't apply to it because it is it is software that exists outside of the uh, reach of copyright law. 
I'll just add a, a couple of points about public domain. In the United States, um, works, uh, including software works authored by uh, federal government employees on, on work time, uh, are automatically in the public domain. Uh, so that means that uh, the code is, is, if it's released at all, it is usable by anyone for any purpose. The other thing is that uh, the organizations that promote free software, which includes the FSF, the OSI, Debian, and various others, generally do not recommend public domain as a licensing solution. It's not really a license. And for various uh, kind of complicated legal reasons that we'll probably not go into in this call, it's actually more effective if you want open source dynamics to put an actual open source license, uh, that is to say a free software license, on your code rather than just disclaiming all copyright and putting it in the public domain. You can, you can protect freedom and reuse better by putting a free software license on the code. Okay. Can you also explain copyleft to us? Sure. We, when we talk about copyright, we're talking about a set of legal rules that allow usually the author or the copyright holder to tell people, you cannot do certain things with my software. You can't copy it, or you can only run it on so many cores, or if you want to run it, you have to pay me for it. Copyleft takes that same set of ability to make decisions about what somebody does with your software and uses it not to exclude people and not to charge them money, but to enforce conditions of access to that software. And so copyleft software says, hey, you cannot make copies of this and go and do things with it unless you um, share it with other people under the same conditions under which you have received it. And so if you were to modify my copyleft software and give it to a friend, we would want you to also give your friend the same rights to the resulting software that you got to the original software. And so what that means is that when you make a bunch of changes and improvements to your software and then distribute it and pass it on, the people you give it to have the same rights to make further copies and make modifications and use the source code to understand it that you got from your upstream copyright holder. And I'll, I'll just, um, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves uh, and you're going to ask this question, but it's very important for listeners to understand that not all open source licenses are copyleft. Copyleft is a subset of open source licenses. And it is, in fact, the big division among open source licenses is those that are copyleft that sort of uh, encourage and under certain circumstances require a kind of sharing ethic and the licenses that don't. They just say, yeah, you can use this code for any purpose and you can make derivative works, modified works that are released under a proprietary or other monopolistic license. Um, so just because something is open source does not necessarily mean it's copyleft, although it often does. Okay. And contributor license agreement or CLA? Software license that projects use when they publish code is not always the same as the legal agreements they need for code that is contributed to the project. So they, they take in code under a contributor license agreement and they publish code under a free software license. And the contributor license agreement is the agreement that the contributors, the developers would sign when they hand a contribution to a project and say, please accept my contribution, please accept my patch, incorporate it into the project and distribute it. Um, here is a piece of paper that gives you all the rights you need 
to make that distribution and handles any legal and liability issues, addresses trademark issues. And so the CLA is a tool that lets projects take contributions from the public in ways that protect the project, uh, the project's ability to continue to operate. Okay, thanks for this explanation. And I think one very interesting use case for software licenses for our audience is, for example, someone wrote a code in his master studies or a PhD studies and finished his degree and wants to publish this code, upload it to GitHub or some other platform. Why does software license matters and why should someone pick one license for this code? I'll, I'll give a short answer. James may have stuff to add. They should pick an open source license, a free software license, because if they just put their code out there with no explicit license on it, that means that by default, their code is under the most restrictive license possible, which is the default copyright license. Now, I happen to think that the law should not should not default to the most restrictive, but people should have to take extra steps to get those restrictions. But that's not the way things are set up right now. So they should put an explicit license on it so that they ensure it is actually open source. And the second thing is they should not try to write their own open source license. This is a matter for professional lawyers. It has already been done. Whenever we see someone has written a custom open source license, there are always problems with it, problems that would become apparent immediately if, if one had to take it to court and actually enforce it. So they should pick an existing popular license. Um, in fact, if you go to opensource.org and click on licenses, they sort of recommend kind of the eight most popular ones. You can get quick summaries of there. Wikipedia also has good summaries of the licenses. Just use one of those is, is the first piece of advice we give to any new project. Don't, don't try to roll your own. So your advice would be to pick a license that is well accepted and understood by the community? Well, yeah, just, just the fact that the license is recognized and known. Like when, for most uh, people in the software world, if they see MIT license, BSD, Apache, uh, GNU general public license, uh, or the, the AGPL, um, or, and a couple of others, but as soon as they see that, they know that this project has at least done the first thing right. It has chosen a well-known open source license and applied it. And that's a good signal to be sending. So if for nothing else in the signaling properties, you want to choose an existing open source license. Okay. And you, and people know what to expect from that project based on the license as well. Right. They don't have to go and do a bunch of research about the license because they or their lawyers have already researched that license and they sort of know what they're getting when they start to use that code or contribute to the project. Okay. When you're choosing a different license, like different license have different aspects which may influence the developers and users choice which legal aspects are generally covered in the various sections of software licenses free software licenses are really concerned with the ability to copy a piece of software and to modify it and so they're really concerned with how do you take this piece of software and make new software with it They don't tend to spend a lot of time on patents. Some of them do have patent clauses, but that's not the main focus of the license. And they don't spend much time on trademark issues, although some licenses do mention trademarks. It's also, again, not the, the focus of these licenses. So every time you are reading a free software license, you are, for the most part, reading a bunch of rules about when you can make copies of it and what you can do with those copies and what your obligations are once you have made those copies. Okay, yeah, these are the general guidelines for uh, free software, but is there any distinctions between, like you mentioned, some license uh, allow trademark protection, others uh, protection for patents? Sure. The, 
there are a few main licenses that are used over and over and over again. And so if you were to take the entire universe of free software licenses, you probably do have every combination of, of rights that are possible. But we generally recommend people restrict themselves to a short list of well-known and commonly used licenses. And so you've got the permissive licenses on, on one side, which would be the MIT BSD ISC licenses. And those are all basically the, the same. They can come um, with slightly more or slightly less words about um, trademark, but they essentially do the same thing as far as copying goes. And then you have the Apache license, which is um, a very broadly permissive license, but it also comes with a little bit um, of more explicit words about copying. And then it also touches on, on uh, patent rights just very briefly. And from there, people usually, if they don't want one of those licenses, start looking at the um, GPL family of licenses. And I'm, I'm leaving out a whole bunch of licenses sort of in between Apache and GPL, but for the sake of time, we can, we can skip them. And the GPL licenses are, are much longer and we'll get into patents in a much more explicit way where you have uh, a lot more detail about patent rights. And of course, they contain the copyleft clauses uh, that we, um, we, when we read those licenses, we can see that, that those, the rules around copyleft require a lot more verbiage as well. So the, the GPL family of licenses are longer and more complex than the other licenses. I want to uh, add to what James said. Um, uh, one, you know, this the rules about what you can do with the code. They they never restrict what you can use the code for, because part of the definition of free software and, and open source is that you can use it for any purpose. When when they restrict what you can do, what they really mean is restricting what restrictions you can place on outbound copies from you. So that's that's the main difference between uh, copyleft and non copyleft licenses. The other thing is regarding patents. No, no open source license, in fact, no software license, can give you a blanket protection from software patents because the people who hold those patents are not necessarily parties to the license. There's just some random patent holder out there, uh, or maybe a, a patent troll outfit, you, you never know. And they will um, choose whether to uh, claim patent infringement on a user of a piece of software based on whether they think they have a good claim and they're motivated to do so. It doesn't matter what license the software is under. The, to the extent that some of these licenses have patent provisions, what they have is a, a kind of uh, minor inoculation against some, some instances of patent aggression, which is that it's called a patent snapback clause, which looks something like mm -hmm. this. Uh, as you get rights, open source rights under this license, however, if you... Uh, cause uh, a patent uh, infringement action of some kind to be taken against anyone for uh, for their use of this software, um, then you lose all of your rights under the license. So in other words, it's it's just that the license is trying to create a, uh, a zone of a no-fire zone, a, a detente around patents, at least as far as, as the project is concerned. And maybe the license does the best it can. But for some party who is not, who isn't, doesn't care about the software and isn't using it, they just want to enforce their patent, that particular penalty doesn't hurt them. And so the project or users of the project are still vulnerable to those incoming patent lawsuits or infringement actions. Okay, so this patent clause would 
maybe more abused like if you had, you had partners from different companies let's say someone from google somebody else from facebook or from uh, i don't know oracle they're all working on the one single project like if any one of them try to sue the others for part of the project then this clause would enter into action yeah the, the purpose of, of patent clauses in free software licenses are generally to prevent patent holders that are contributors from using their patents to subvert the freedom of the of the um, uh, to prevent the freedoms of the project that are given in the free software license. And so, if you are contributing to a project and you are doing that on a free software basis, you are giving over certain copyrights. And the goal of the patent clause is really to say, hey. You said you people can use this software under these copyrights. Don't then go using your patents to try to um, take those rights back. Yeah, well, well put. That's that's exactly right. Okay, this was a nice general overview. But when I was discussing with colleagues or the lawyers from my university, there are some other important aspects, and I think. One very important aspect in academia is citations to yeah get more reputation. And can you say something of enforcement of crediting if I use some license or how does it work that people who use my code or extend my code have to credit me or can credit me? So there, there are attribution clauses in some free software licenses. And the attribution clauses are not... Um, They're not really designed to enforce academic citation, um, but they they do tend to say that if you're going to use my software in your work, you're going to build on top of it, that you have to preserve the copyright notices in the software. Um, some of them say, mention, mention me wherever you put credits, um, which could be in citations, it could be in a general thank you, it could just be in a, in a list of software that you're relying on. So there are some free software licenses that will say, don't just obscure the fact that you're built on top of my software, but there is no free software license I'm aware of, not even the academic free software license, um, that would enforce citation in any sort of academic, uh, up to any sort of academic standards or in any sort of academic format. And I think we, because of that, I think what we uh, do and, and would strongly recommend to listeners is if that's what they want, that, that kind of formal academic format of citation, they should put a statement uh, where it will be seen in the readme, maybe even in the, at the top of the license file, uh, somewhere where the you know, results from the code will be displayed or something like that stating this citation format that they would like and actually making it really easy for the for the users to do that citation. Just give them something to copy and paste into their paper or whatever it is. And this isn't part of the license. You're not changing the legal terms. It's a polite request, but most people will honor that request if it's made easy for them and if it's put somewhere where they can see it. So the license isn't your only tool for getting attribution. If you just ask people to do it right and make it easier for them to do so, then they usually will. Right, and, and we, we rely on the norms in the academic world to um, cause people to behave in accordance with those requests. I mean, the same sets of norms that prevent the vast majority of academics from engaging in plagiarism would uh, also apply here, where if you're using somebody's work, it is traditional 
to acknowledge it. And if you don't acknowledge it in an appropriate way, um, you have crossed a, a line and you will earn the opprobrium of your peers. And then that's usually enough to convince people that they should do appropriate citation in those instances. Okay. So the next thing is, yeah, it also happened to me because I wanted to publish some code. I was working doing my PhD studies and then I was going to the law department of my university and they were agreeing that it is good to publish the code, but they were really afraid about warranty and liability. Can you say something about this for some licenses? How does it work? Because my university was very afraid that someone is using my code, there is a bug, and then they will sue the university. Sure. So the one thing that every free software license um, I've read, at least every major free software license I've read, has in common is a bit of language that that says, hey, if you're going to use this, you're welcome to it. But if something goes wrong, don't blame me. And that's 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 a warranty disclaimer. And you'll find it in every single major free software language. And we have seen those warranty disclaimers. We've um, not seen much in the way of legal action for um, liability based on bugs in the software. So we don't have a bunch of court cases that tell us those warranty disclaimers are rock solid. And yet, um, the fact that we've not had any of that kind of liability over time is a pretty good indication that bugs in your software are not going to be the thing that, that is your undoing. So, you know, if, if university council, which is traditionally uh, a somewhat conservative um, part of the legal world, has concerns about liability in bugs from free software that they ship, They should try to find even one instance of a um, producer of free software being held to account for their bugs in, a, in, a, in the form of liability. And if they find it, please let me know. I would love to see it, but I, I have not seen it. Now, if people should note that if they, um, if they sign a separate agreement, a contract um, agreeing to take responsibility for bugs, then of course... Uh, that's that's different than you than you may have an issue even if the free software license has this big all capital letters disclaimer of, of warranty. Um, but that's you don't sign that agreement with everyone who downloads your code. You only sign that consciously as part of a contract that you're entering into, and you you know the counterparty and stuff. So as long as people aren't doing that, then they should have all the warranty, the the freedom from responsibility that is granted by the warranty disclaimer in the free software license. Okay, and another aspect when I was talking to this this department was copyright assignment and ownership because they really like to ship the software as open source, but maybe later if someone wants to make money out of it or I make money out of it, they wanted to assure that they still or I still keep the copyright or the ownership of the software. Can you say something about this aspect they were interested in? I mean, one of the greatest things about free and open source software is that it largely makes copyright ownership moot. Um, once you ship it as free software, nobody really needs to care who owns it, uh, which is which is why we get frictionless, permissionless sharing uh, that powers many uses of the software in many domains over time. So, if you want to maximize the use of, if you want to maximize the use of the software. A free software license is a great way to do that. If you want to force the people who make the use, who use your software later on, to then give you money, um, 
that might be a little bit more difficult. The, the best thing you can do if you want to be in that position, I guess, is to release your software under um, a copyleft license, and then you'll have the ability to tell people who use your software downstream that unless they're going to uh, build their business around a copyleft model, they need to come back to you for additional um, additional rights. But for the most part, if you are releasing under a free software license, the you, you don't get to tell people you're not allowed to make money on my software, or if you want to make money on my software, you have to pay me. What you can do is build a business around it that produces incentives and structures that um, create flows of money to you, uh, but you're not going to be able to prevent your downstream from doing things they want to do. Yeah, I just want to... Um pile on to what James just said. There's this myth out there that, that free software is, is in some way anti-commercial. Um, and that's it's actually the opposite of the truth. Nothing could be more commercial than literally giving everyone the freedom to use the software commercially, um, which is what free software does. It's, it's proprietary licenses that stifle uh, uh, commercial activity more because they they monopolize all commercial potential in the hands of one party who then gets to say yes or no to each potential commercial use. Uh, free software is not merely compatible with commercial activity, it is quite encouraging of commercial activity and it is widely used in the commercial world. Okay, so I think one last thing our audience is very interesting is the compatibility of between licenses because we develop our code and it happens very often that we need some existing library for input, output or Pre-processing, post-processing. Can you say something about this aspect for our audience? Sure. The when we talk about two licenses being compatible with each other, what we mean is, can you take software that is licensed under one of these licenses and mix it with the software that is released under the other license and produce something that um, can be shipped? to the world can be distributed uh, in ways that comply with both licenses at once. And if you can do that, the two licenses are compatible, right? You can, you can join them up and you can make software that is, is, it is possible to distribute in a way that complies with the legal obligations contained in both of the licenses. And we typically have the compatibility discussion in the context of the copyleft set of licenses, because they are long and complex and contain a lot of clauses and have a lot of um, uh, steps that you have to go through in order to comply when you release. And if you try to follow all of those rules, as well as all the rules of another license, the two licenses sets of rules might not match up that well. And so we, we would look to a, um, a website like the Free Software Foundation's website that has comments about various licenses and whether or not they are compatible with the GPL. Or we might look to um, other websites that have charts of which licenses are compatible with each other and under which conditions. Um, and sometimes those, those charts and websites simplify things quite a bit, sometimes too much. But usually, if you have a question about whether two um, pieces of software can be mixed, even though they are under different licenses, the best thing to do is try to find one of those authorities who can help you figure that out. 
we would not encourage people to try to do that analysis um, on their own in any sort of ad hoc way because that analysis can get complex and requires a little bit of expertise. But fortunately, for most combinations of licenses, somebody has done the work and they've put that in a public place and, and you can try to figure it out based on, on hints from the, the, the public internet. Based on the present and the, the past of uh, software licenses, which software license do you consider to be the most influential, both in, in its actual um, influence currently, like it being, being used or being an inspiration for other licenses? Wow. Um, in terms of, of sheer influence, I would have to say the, the GPL, the, the first really the first free software license and the first copyleft license um, in the sense that it was influential in that it forced a lot of people to think about which, which of copyrights restrictive powers they wanted to use and which they wanted to reverse in effect. Um, but it also uh, sparked a bit of a backlash. There were a lot of developers, um, not all by any means, um, but some developers who felt that Even the, the GPL's requirement that derivative works also be under the GPL, I'm simplifying a little bit there, but that's basically the requirement, um, felt that that was taking too much uh, away and that people should have essentially the right to use code that is free software in something that as part of something that is not free software and that, that they wanted to be able to do that. The GPL forced both of those discussions. Um, and so even though some people disagreed with it, it was still, it has to count as influential in that it, it crystallized uh, positions and made, made a, uh, brought a, a sort of latent debate out into the open. Um, and it became the prototype for virtually all copyleft licenses that came after it. It is still widely used, by the way. We, we ourselves release some software under the GPL or under its near cousin <coughs> A GPL. If a totally newcomer starts a new project with no prior knowledge about free software licenses, which first license should you think you should consider? Well, we generally don't take a one-size-fits-all approach to licenses. Um, whenever somebody says, what license should I use, we usually try to figure out what their goals are. What are they trying to accomplish by shipping software under a free license? What kind of open source dynamics are they trying to create? Who else is in their community? What kind of resources do they have? What do they think the life cycle of this um, software project is? And, and how does it fit into everything else that they are doing and all the other collaborators in their industry are doing? And by looking at sort of a broad set of factors on the types of collaboration you're trying to encourage and the types of threats to that co collaboration that might exist, we can usually um, come to a, to a recommendation on what license is most appropriate. But there's never been a, a time when I, I've thought that, um, you know, the going into a project, we know what the license is before we ask those questions. I, yeah, I, I agree with James, but I will say that, like, Not everyone has the time or the connections uh, or, or is willing to invest the resources to have that discussion. Um, so the, uh, an easy answer is if your project incorporates dependencies, uh, it uses software that's already under some license, um, the easiest thing to do may be just to release on your own code under the same license so that way you're guaranteed compatibility. Um, the other answer is if you want copyleft, go with uh, GPL, the GNU General Public License, or the Afero GNU General Public License, the AGPL. Um, 
uh, I generally I would say a GPL because it's basically a superset of the GPL. Or if you don't want copyleft, um, then BSD, uh, the two clause so-called simplified BSD license is a good solution. Again, we'd much rather that people actually took some time to think and ask around and choose the best license. There are plenty of projects where the Apache version 2 license is a better choice. But if you really have no no time to think about it, then then those guidelines might sure. might do you okay. Yeah, the other, feel free to jump on me there, you know. No, no, no. I, I think that's 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 better advice than I gave. Um, the the other thing I would say is that in some communities there are licenses that are quite prevalent. Um, and so there are community defaults for licenses. If you are making um, if you're making JavaScript libraries, the the general um, ethos in that community seems to have converged around permissive licensing and we think that for the sake of attracting your community and getting everyone together, going along with the community ethos on licensing has a lot of value. In other communities, um, you know, the, the plug-in communities around CMSs, there's a, a strong pull towards GPL. And in fact, there, there are legal requirements about that as well. And so, you know, if you look around and you see everyone who's doing something kind of like what you want to do has chosen a particular license, you don't have to do a lot of analysis, maybe. You can just kind of do what they're doing and rely on the wisdom of the crowd. Is it possible to use multiple licenses for some piece of code? Maybe some license for non-commercial and for commercial usage? Or it, Open source means that you cannot prohibit commercial versus non-commercial use. Like All uses are permitted, including for commercial purposes. Um, and this is, by the way, something we, we see a lot that people, especially in academia or the sciences, say, well, I want a license, I want an open source license, but that only allows academic use or nonprofit use. And if there's commercial stuff going on, I want to I want to have a, a cut of the action or I want to have a say in that. That's fine if you want to do that, but then you're not doing open source. That's, that just simply is not open source. Um, so since we're here discussing open source, you know, all the licenses permit commercial and non-commercial use alike. The one thing I will say is if you if you think there is commercial potential, you might release first under uh, uh, GPL or AGPL because if you don't, what, what will happen is that the, the players that are going to make commercial use of it who will probably have more resources than you, assuming you're a grad student or you know working in a lab as a researcher or something, they are going to have the muscle to take the code and go off in a proprietary direction with it if the license permits them to. Um, without necessarily bringing you on board with that or, or, or taking advantage of the community you've built. If you have a copyleft license, that really encourages the, them to come and play in the same sandbox with you, release their code under the same license, um, and gives them incent an incentive to uh, at least offer for you to participate in whatever they're doing. Now, if you're getting contributions from, from outside contributors, you'll have to have a CLA that that makes sure that the whole project stays under AGPL. And if you want the right to relicense under some different license later, the CLA would have to say that that's possible. Your community may not want that. That's, we're getting into complicated things now, and that's where they need to bring in some expertise and really think it through. But if you just have to make an early decision, I would say start out with a copyleft license. You're not prohibiting commercial activity, but you are forcing that commercial activity to come to the table and talk to you, which is usually a good thing. For scientists, which aspect do you think that they should consider when choosing a software license for their project? Well, are you going for um, massive collaboration or, or widespread use? 
um, or are you aiming for for commercial uptake? Uh, those all affect the question. Um, there may be circumstances where you get you expect to get a wide user base, um, and you want to encourage that by choosing the simplest, uh, least least complicated license possible, which is usually the MIT or the BSD simplified license. Um, and then by the time there's commercial interest, the, the entity that is, that is uh, centered on your software is not so much the code itself, but the community around it. And that becomes a valuable thing for the commercial actors to come and interface with. So maybe in that circumstance, a, a non-copyleft license is appropriate. Um, but there really isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to that as much as people might like there to be. Yeah, it's, it's more a series of questions that each scientist should ask himself about the, the goal of the project and where it should be. Right. What do you picture in your mind when you hear, do you hear the term open science? Man, o open science is much bigger than open source software in my mind. Um, when we're talking about open science, we're not just talking about the, the technology that is used to, to do science and to do discovery. But in my mind, we start talking about um, open access to the data that is collected during scientific work, open access to the research artifacts and the, the papers that get written, the ability to have access to the scientific collaborative process and have that done in a public way all throughout the, the discovery and um And writing process is is another thing I think of when I think of open science. So it, it's not a it's not about um, the technology the way it is with uh, free and open source software, but it's really about the scientific process and the ability to open collaboration to during that process and open access to all of the artifacts and results of that process. I, I want to say that there, there is a genuine conflict here because, you know, I think of the same thing James does where open science means, means access to all the data, you know, kind of in the same way that it's accessible to the scientists. There is a genuine conflict in that there are many scientists who they invest a lot in gathering data. They want and expect, even, even sometimes when it's publicly funded, they want a little bit of a period of exclusive access to that data in order to to recoup that investment and to write their paper. Um, it's usually not a monetary gain. It's a, it's a professional gain. You know, they get one step closer to tenure or to getting the Nobel Prize or whatever it is. And there is a conflict between open science and the, the way some of the incentives are structured and perhaps inevitably are structured in science. And I'm not sure that it'll ever be fully resolved, but I do think that the end goal for scientific data as well as code Um, all of the all of this sort of work product that goes into scientific results should be open and transparent under uh, some kind of public license like an open source license. But I realize that there are sort of at the beginning of the process, there may be periods of exclusivity that that do make sense from a, for this health of the overall ecosystem. Okay. Can you think about any downsides for floss and science? Not a one. No, nope. <laughs> I think uh, I think open source software makes a lot of sense for science. I can't imagine I can't imagine a circumstance in which you're doing science and it is better served by writing proprietary code than open source code. I just I can't imagine that. Maybe I'm just yeah. not imaginative enough. The, the the things we get out of science, the the advancement in knowledge and discovery that we get out of science are separate from the technology we use to make science. And 
there's not really any upside to trying to monopolize the technology that powers science because that's not actually the point of what any of that activity is aimed at. And so it's kind of um, it's kind of a situation where we want everyone to have lots and lots of access to as much of the technology that powers scientific discovery as possible because that is the way that you get more um, scientific output out of it. And whether you're doing open science or you're doing a um, more proprietary version of science where you want patents and the ability to make products no one else can, um, the underlying tooling that powers that research and discovery is, is best distributed widely um, and cheaply and to as many people as possible. So whether, you, whether your, your reasons for doing science are um, about furthering discovery and knowledge or your reasons are about finding something that you can then own and exploit, you should still want the underlying technology to be free of open source software. Amen to that. So you see more uh, free software as a tool under the umbrella of open science a tool that empowers everybody to, to reproduce science, to do science, to make it more available and more free to everyone? Yeah, and, and you know, you, you brought up reproducibility, which we, we hadn't mentioned earlier, and that is a, a key piece of, of why free software should be part of the tool set. Um, if only some scientists have access to the tools because they are proprietary tools, then the ability to reproduce work goes way down. And the You know, reproducibility in science is currently one of the biggest weaknesses we have. There's, there's, there is, in every field I've ever looked at, less um, verifying reproducibility than any scientist would agree uh, is ideal. And so if we can remove barriers to not just the work being reproducible, but other scientists actually attempting to reproduce it, then I think we, we advance the goals of science and make it more reliable and give us answers that are more robust and that we can have greater trust in. So that, that's another um, good reason why we should be looking to free software tools wherever we can. Yeah, unfortunately for grant agencies, uh, reproducing experiments from other is not sexy enough and we do not usually get grant money for that kind of uh, <laughs> experiments. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there, there's kind of an incentive that is not present in that case. Uh, also, we're mostly talking about scientists in the case of academic scientists. What do you think of citizen scientists? I mean, you know, the the nice thing about democratizing access to tools and, and removing the barriers that um, prevent people from getting the um, most professional versions of tools and the, the most capable versions of tools is that we can allow anybody to do science in the same way that free software has allowed anybody to do software development. Uh, we can expand the pool of people who are suddenly not prohibited from doing certain kinds of, of scientific inquiry. And I, I think that's, that's great. And I don't know what the, um, what set of scientific discoveries that will create over time, but I'm certainly excited to, to find out. Okay. Before we go to the conclusion, there's one question we ask all of our interviewee. What would be your favorite text processing tool? <laughs> James. I'll, 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 
I'll let Carl give the answer. Same for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so the answer is Emacs. Um, by the way, this is not, we're not taking a stand in the eternal Emacs versus VI war or Vim war. Um, I have seen people who really know Vim well. I've seen them using it, and they're just as fast, fast and efficient as the Emacs users. Um, but I was trained on Emacs. Um, it is, they, it, they're practically spinal reflexes for me at this point. I can't imagine uh, working in something else, and, and it's, my Emacs is heavily customized. And, and by the way, my, my Emacs initialization files are released as free software uh, in a public uh, open source site as well. So uh, I have received patches from strangers to my own Emacs, my .emacs initialization files. Okay, so it's a matter of muscle memory. Muscle memory and, and customizability. I do. I, the serious point there is that if you're developing software at all, including free software, um, taking some time to learn the tools that you use to manipulate the code is really a worthwhile investment. And it's something that scientists often don't have a chance to do because they're busy doing science. They're not there to become experts at software development. But it is really worth taking some time to learn your editor. It will pay off for the rest of your life. Okay. Uh, if any of our listeners want to find your book, where should we point them to? Oh, uh, the website is producingoss.com. Uh, producing, that is producing open source software, but it's just abbreviated as oss.com. Okay. Do you have any other sources of information that you would suggest for our listeners when they get more interest and want to dig deeper into the topic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you go to opentechstrategies.com there is a section of the website labeled resources that has a number of uh, publications and things that Carl and I have written that are useful to anybody who might be considering releasing something under free software and have questions about what licenses to choose and how to structure things um, and it also has uh, ways to reach us if you want to talk to us about it and uh, um, see if there's a way that we can help Okay, we will put definitely this link in the blog post to this episode. And is there anything else you'd like to share with us? I just want to, this is Carl speaking, I just want to share with those who are dipping their toes in the water of public open source software development for the first time that it is, you will be surprised, I think, at what a pleasure it is. Even if you're not, you don't think of yourself as a software developer primarily. The moment you start getting bug reports and patches, uh, uh, pull requests, from other people to modify your code and improve it. Um, it's just this, uh, it's just this rush. Like you, you realize that there are a bunch of people out there who are thinking the way you are and they have the same goals and they want to work with you. And once you've experienced that on a regular basis, it's hard to go back. Um, I really recommend trying it if, if they're considering it. Okay. Thank you, Carl and James for the time you took with us in this interview. If any of our listeners wants to reach you, how would you like them to contact you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at James Bazile, J-A-M-E-S-B-A-S-I-L-E, and that's, uh, that's how a lot of people reach me. Or you can um, come to our website, opentechstrategies.com, which has a chat section at chat.opentechstrategies.com, and that's another good way to get in contact with me. Yeah, I'll also say that uh, just the uh, front page of the website, just go to www.opentechstrategies.com, click on the contact link, and there's there's an email address and other ways to reach us. And also, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter and Identica uh, as kfogel, K-F-O-G-E-L. K -F -O -G -E -L. 
this will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview and you can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. Also, you can reach me at underscore Debras or both of us at Philosopher Science. We are on iTunes and Google Play Music. You can help us by leaving comments and rating to help new listeners discover our shows. Our website is located at philosopherscience.github.io where you can find more of our contact informations and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject and ideas for future episodes. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. You can get our MP3 and OGG RSS feeds on our website. Also, following the new GDPR regulations, we added a new section about data privacy in our website. For our next three episodes, we planned a series about numerical simulations, meshing, and geometry analyzers. We interviewed Bruno Blais, a user who used these tools in his research, Christophe Gozen from the GMesh project, and Sébastien Loriot from Seagull. We are sure that you will enjoy these topics. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in our next episode. Bye. Bye.